Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami Welcome to the uh, first of this year's Sunday afternoon talks. So, uh, as uh, people will be aware, then uh, every uh, every Sunday afternoon for the next three months, we have these um, uh, Dhamma offerings, the opportunity to come to the monastery and to uh, listen to some teachings, to reflect, and uh, hopefully... Uh, what we what we hear, what we discuss, what we reflect on, will be something that is uh, of uh, direct uh, benefit for our lives. So uh, today, the uh, the theme for today is uh, not my circus, not my monkeys, which for some of you will be a bit of an esoteric uh, title. If any, if any of you come from a Polish background, you might recognise it as an old Polish proverb. Any, do we have any polls here? No polls. Okay. <laughs> I was going to ask somebody to to pronounce that, to pronounce it properly in Polish, but uh, so this is a um, uh, a proverb that I learnt uh, a year or so ago when I was um, leading a, a retreat here at Amravati, and uh, I was quoting a, a teaching of Ajahn Chah, which I'll I'll read out from here. And uh, also referring to a, a painting that we have in the shrine room there in the uh, retreat center. So this is a passage from a talk of Lung Po Cha's called Still Flowing Water. The so-called hindrances are the things we must study. Whenever we sit, the mind immediately goes running off. We follow it and try to bring it back and observe it once more. Then it goes off again. This is what you're supposed to be studying. Most people refuse to learn their lessons from nature, like a naughty schoolboy who refuses to do his homework. They don't want to see the mind changing. But then, how are you going to develop wisdom? We have to live with change like this. When we know that the mind is just this way, constantly changing, when we know that it is... When we know that this is its nature, we will understand it. So I just we can leave it there. Suppose you have a pet monkey. Monkeys don't still for very long, don't stay still for very long. They like to jump around and grab things. That's how monkeys are. Now you come to the monastery and you see a monkey here. This monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around, just like your pet monkey at home. But it doesn't bother you, does it? You've raised a monkey before, so you know what they're like. If you know just one monkey, no matter where you go, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them. Will you? That's because you are one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you don't understand monkeys, you may become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? 
If you see it reaching for this and that and you shout, hey, stop, and you get angry, that damn monkey, then you are one who doesn't know monkeys. One who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey in the monastery are just the same. Why should you get annoyed by them? When you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. You can be at peace. So hopefully this is a meaningful teaching. And what Ajahn Chah is talking about there is um, how when we want to, to meditate, we think, oh, if I'm meditating well, then my mind is completely peaceful and calm and filled with wholesome and uh, noble qualities. And it doesn't get restless, it doesn't get distracted. But uh, the point he's making is that it's the mind's nature to be distracted, to, to chase after things that we... We remember things that we, we see, the things that we smell and taste and touch, things that we hear. That's, that's its nature. If you want the mind to be different uh, to that, then you, you've got the wrong kind of mind. <laughs> You're in the wrong universe. That's what minds are like. That, that's, that's their nature. And so that uh, rather than demanding, uh, setting out in the meditation to demand that the mind not be like that, uh, just as he's, he talks about, it's a monkey, so it behaves like a monkey. So if you, uh, if you don't expect it to be different, then, then you won't suffer. If you know that's what monkeys are like, then it'll be uh, 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 straightforward and easier for you to work with it. So I was using this as an example in uh, the uh, Dhamma teachings. And in the, uh, the shrine room at the retreat center, there's a very very fine painting. It's of a, of a Buddha image. Uh, it's a kind of a Khmer style uh, Buddha image. And sitting in the lap of the Buddha is a langur monkey, one of those uh, monkeys you get in India and in Sri Lanka. With a, uh, they have a very kind of dignified nature. They're not like the bandar, which are the sort of bandits and uh, hooligans of the monkey world. But langur is a bit more dignified. They kind of a very um, upright posture, and they have a very long tail. I think they're a little bit proud of their tails, but they have a very, uh, very um, um, much more dignified nature. Anyway, there's a langur monkey sitting on the lap of this uh, Buddha image. So I was um, using the example of Ajahn Chah's teaching and also this um, monkey in relationship to the, to the Buddha image, how when the, the, uh, in the presence of, of wisdom, you know, uh, it's still a monkey, but it's a monkey that is uh, is a bit more uh, composed than usual. So uh, talking in this way, then uh, in one of the interviews, uh, one of the people on the retreat who uh, comes from a Polish background said, uh, you know, Ajahn, there's an old Polish proverb uh, and, uh, that, about monkeys. And I said, no, I never heard of that. He said, it's uh, not my circus, not my monkeys. And uh, I immediately felt this was a very profound and insightful uh, proverb because um, it's not just talking about uh, monkeys in the same way that uh, Ajahn Chah was, talking about um, our own mind states, but in particular talking about uh, the world and the way we relate to uh, the different aspects of, of our life and uh, how we get caught up in things. And I, I don't know if your mind is anything like mine, but uh, I find that uh, my character is one that I get, uh, I would hear a piece of news, or I'd be in a conversation with someone, uh, I'd, uh, <coughs> I'd uh, hear some kind of comment being made, and immediately I would identify 
with the issue. I would get all concerned with the the, um, the people involved, or, or like watching a, um, a a film or a TV program. You get wrapped up in the lives of the people, even though you know there aren't actually any people in Albert Square. There isn't an Albert Square in London. But if you look at the uh, the BBC website, that the the most popular programs every week are EastEnders. Uh, those people don't really exist. They are actors. <gasps> but yet their lives and what goes on in Albert Square is, is more important to many people than, than their own lives. And if you think I'm reading your mind, it's right, I don't, I, I don't have the ability to read minds. It's, uh, I'm just working on statistics. This is, this is how we are. We get wrapped up very easily in other people's lives, in, in uh, other people's concerns. And uh, I remember some years ago, a really good example of this was uh, uh, I was lighting a, a fire and uh, had a, a, um, some, some newspaper to start the fire with. And as can happen when you're living in a place where there's not much reading matter, uh, you, you, know, you start to, to notice the, the news stories in the old newspapers. So this newspaper was three or four years old. And there was a news story about a, a goalkeeper who had made a, a really stupid mistake and had let in a goal and their team had lost. Now this was a real disaster. And the, the newspaper was three or four years old. I really don't care about football. And yet there I was, completely wrapped up in this, this the goalkeeper's life. Oh no, what a tragedy, how terrible, how awful. And was really suffering on account of this, uh, this terrible mistake that the goalkeeper had made. He'd probably forgotten it, you know, three or four years later. It was no longer an issue for him. But there I was, as a Buddhist monk, you know, just using a piece of paper to start a fire with. And, so, and there's this, this uh, uh, concern, uh, the, the, the mind identified with, with some story. So this is um, making the monkeys yours. <laughs> it's my circus and my monkeys. I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped up in this. I'm completely identified with this. Even though... On one hand, you, you say, I don't really care about football. Or who, you know, I don't even know the teams or you know, who won or who lost. But yet there's that, oh dear, what a terrible disaster. What an, what an awful thing. And so, uh, uh, again, if, I don't know how many of you have minds like mine, but uh, uh, if, uh, if we don't understand this, then we find ourselves being caught up in every kind of story we come across that... Uh, the piece, uh, pieces of information we get through the news or, or the um, events of, of uh, Albert Square and the Coronation Street and uh, you know, all the, the, the fictional realms, these places that don't really exist except in the, the, uh, the minds of, of scriptwriters and the, the millions and millions of people who are, who are watching the programs. So uh, uh, I hope this is a useful theme. <laughs> And that uh, this is something that is uh, is uh, both a familiar uh, area of experience and also something it'd be good to reflect on. So that when when we are say not uh, familiar with how the mind works, we are continually uh, 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 identifying with and owning um, the uh, so many different aspects of our life. And now that we're in what they call the information age, it's not just uh, hearing a story you know, over the counter at the local shop, uh, or um, you know, watching a, uh, a you know, ten minutes of news once a day, you know, most of us are, are now uh, inundated with information, 
we have uh, a, an extraordinary amount of, of uh, news about every country on the planet uh, coming into us uh, you know, all day and, and uh, much of the night uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, I've often quoted this statistic I, I read a couple of years ago where um, it was at a, uh, a, a talk that was being given to encourage uh, child literacy uh, here in London. And the, the person who was giving the talk was a novelist called Neil Gaiman. And a, a day or two before, he'd been talking with one of the, uh, the senior people from Google and uh, he, so he recounted this conversation. And uh, what he said was that, uh, um, that this senior person from Google, one of the vice presidents, said, between the dawn of civilization when we first began to uh, create the written word or uh, images and uh, to record uh, events, say about 10,000 years ago, up to 2007, humanity created roughly five exabytes of information. That's five billion gigabytes of information. That's every newspaper, every novel, every poem, every letter, um, every, uh, every play you know, uh, uh, that was composed in every country around the world. So about five billion gigabytes of information from 10,000 BC up until 2007, when, <clears throat> when the information age really kicked off. <laughs> and so now we create the same amount of information, guess how, in, in what period of time? Two day, every two days. Actually, well, that was, that was a couple of years ago now, so it probably is about an hour <laughs> uh, by now, the, the speed that things are, are increasing. Uh, uh, and, and back in 1984, uh, Bill Gates said, I, I can't conceive of a time where any personal computer would ever need more than 32 kilobytes of memory. So those of you who are at all familiar with computers, you know that 32 kilobytes is not even, not even a, blank, uh, a blank word document. <laughs> the, uh, and a photograph would be uh, three or four megabytes as a matter of course. So we are inundated with information, with, with news. And so that has an impact on us. We find ourselves, it's very much our circus, and these are all our monkeys, and they're behaving as monkeys do. They, they, the world jumps around and is chaotic and confusing, and therefore stressful because of that sense of, of ownership and uh, so possessiveness that we have, that it's not just information that we hear, but it becomes ours and becomes who and what we are. And through that ide <laughs> identification, then uh, we, uh, we create stress, pressure, and, and fragmentation in our life. So a lot of this revolves around what, uh, the way that the mind works with any kind of a thought. And so one of the themes that we, we frequently talk about here that was uh, is a very important aspect of, of Dhamma practice is what the, the Buddha called papancha, or conceptual proliferation. It's an English expression for that. So papancha is the Pali word, uh, conceptual proliferation. This is the, the mind, not, uh, uh, not just having a single thought, but uh, a, a thought leading on to a, a second thought, a third thought, fourth, fifth, sixth, uh, a whole chain of associative thinking, how we get lost in our thoughts. As a, a very useful teaching, the most, uh, say, um, uh, comprehensive teaching that the Buddha gave about 
uh, Papancha, conceptual proliferation, you find in the middle-length discourses, it's called the, the Madhupindika Sutta, the, uh, the sweet morsel or the honeyball. And uh, at the start of this, this sutta, it begins with the Buddha sitting by himself in the forest uh, under, a, uh, under a tree. And as he's uh, sitting in the forest, this uh, Brahmin uh, comes wandering through the, the same area. And this Brahmin is a professional debater. You know, like uh, nowadays we have, um, say, uh, you, you hire a, a band to come to your, to your wedding and provide entertainment. In ancient India, you'd hire debaters. Maybe even nowadays they still do. You have a, to have, come and have a, spir- a spiritual argument you know, to sort of provide philosophical entertainment at a, at a wedding or at a family festival. So this, uh, this particular Brahmin was, was called Dandapani, and he was a professional arguer, professional debater. So, uh, and he was pretty proud of himself. He thought he was really something uh, uh, pretty hot and, and uh, a very um, uh, skilled and accomplished. And, and he'd heard of the Buddha's reputation, and there he was sitting under a tree. And he thought, Aha, it's that monk Gotama. Uh, he's supposed to be very wise. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask him a, a question and then uh, I'll uh, hear what he has to say that I'll find fault with his, with his philosophy, take it to pieces and show him, uh, show him what a, a, a real spiritual teacher is, uh, is like. And so then uh, he came up to the Buddha and you know, uh, introduced himself and uh, said, so, uh, so what kind of practice do you do? What kind of philosophy do you teach? What sort of uh, teaching do you follow? And the Buddha, who was a pretty, uh, not, not only did he have psychic powers, but he also was a pretty good judge of character. Uh, he, uh, it seems like he, had, he sussed out this, this uh, bloke right from the very beginning. And he said, uh, I follow such a teaching that encourages non-contention with anybody in the world. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so then, uh, as it says in the sutta, then the, the Brahmin Dandapani, realizing he had, the, he had nothing, to, nothing to say, no way of following that, because he was looking for an argument, and the Buddha was saying, yeah, I follow the path of non-contention. <laughs> yeah, you're looking for an argument, but I'm not going to argue with you. And uh, so then it says that Dandapani kind of clicked his tongue three times, his brow you know, formed into, into three furrows, and he went off you know, shaking his head and uh, left the Buddha alone. Uh, so then the, uh, the, the Buddha went back to the monastery and then recounted this incident to the, the people there. And, uh, and so, um, uh, and he said, that this is, uh, it's through attachment to thinking that we, uh, we create the causes for every kind of argument, or every kind of struggle. This is the reason why people pick up weapons and, and attack each other. It's through uh, uh, attachment to perceptions and thought that, uh, that we, we do this. And then he he, uh, he left them, and uh, so then he didn't say very much. But the uh, the group then thought, well, let's go and find Mahakachana because he's really good at explaining in detail things that the Buddha has said very briefly. So they go off and they, they track down Mahakachana and say, well, you know, the master just made this very brief statement. He had this encounter with this Brahmin in the woods, and uh, he made this very brief statement about how it's attachment to perceptions and thoughts that uh, cause all kinds of arguments and strife and struggle in the world. So, uh, and, then he, and then he went off and went into his kuti and left us there. So can you explain what he might have meant by that? Or can you, uh, can you fill that out for us? And Mahakachana was indeed most gifted at that kind of uh, explanation. And um, 
sort of uh, exegesis of the, the Buddha's brief statements. And, uh, and then it was Mahakachana who first explained uh, in detail this process of conceptual proliferation. So he said, uh, it's, uh, it works like this. Say the, 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 uh, say the eye contacts a visual form. So we, we see something. So the, uh, there's the eye, there's a visual object, and there's eye consciousness arises. The, th- the three coming together is eye contact. Then that, <coughs> that contact gives rise to a feeling, a feeling of uh, a pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. Then uh, that feeling, a Vedana, that conditions uh, a perception, a sanya, that, so that the mind, uh, say, uh, receives that impression. Then uh, following, immediate, uh, following immediately along with that sense impression, then the thinking mind comes in and names it. So we, uh, we, uh, I look at the, the wall at the back of the sala, and uh, so then the perception, the eye, the eye sees the light, the, it, it hits the visual cortex of the brain. The brain perceives a particular color, and then the thinking mind, Vitaka, comes in and says, red. <laughs> it's, it's a, that's a red color. So there's the sanya is the actual perception, and then the Vitaka is the, the naming of that. So then following immediately on the Vitaka, there is conceptual proliferation. Along with that thought of red is that that well, that yeah, it is. It, there's actually three kinds of red back there, and yeah, I remember when we did that. It was about 1991. That uh, yeah, Ajahn Sumato. It was during the winter retreat of 91. That's right. When uh, he did the redecoration of the sala, and I was down at Chitas. That's right, Kitty Sorrow. He was a monk then. Oh yeah, that was a really good retreat. <laughs> so this is papancha. The the mind takes a particular impression, a thought, and then. And then it starts off with a whole story. Suddenly, just from seeing red, <laughs> the the mind picks up. Oh, when that wall was painted, that was 1991. Why? Wow, that's 25 years ago already. And I, when that was painted, I was down at Chithurst Monastery. And so, uh, the story of a different time, a different place, uh, 25 years ago, pop into the mind, and then off it off it goes. And then the papancha then leads to what is called papancha sanya sankar, which is you don't need to remember. But that means the 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 multiplicity, the the diversity of perceptions and feelings that uh, uh, say that pressurize the heart. And essentially, what it means is that the more that the mind gets lost in its own thinking, the more there is me here and the world out there. There's me remembering that time, me here and those people out there, me here and and that future that's awaiting me that I don't know what's going to happen. So the further down the the track the mind goes, then the the more it gets, uh, there's a sense of me here, the world out there, and the pressure between the the two. And then the... um, uh, and then Mahakachana said, "This is because of, uh, it's because of this uh, capacity of the mind to get lost in its own thoughts, its own impressions, its own creations. Then this is how we end up uh, in a sense of struggle and conflict between uh, ourselves and others. Because the world that I get lost in is not necessarily the same as the world that you get lost in. <laughs> that uh, we we have a, a great deal of, of conflict and, and division in the world in these days." 
And that conflict is coming uh, largely because one person's belief system doesn't mesh with another person's belief system. One person's experience of, of what they have in life is very different from what another person's experience of what they have in life and that sense of unfairness uh, that uh, arises on account of that. Different, uh, different, worlds, uh, different world views, different perceptions, uh, different sense of what's right, what's wrong, what's, what's true, what's not true. And uh, if my truth doesn't mesh with your truth, then it's very easy for us to have a conflict. And so when uh, uh, <coughs> Mahakachala had explained all of this, and then the, the Buddha reappeared sometime later, and they, they repeated back to him, this is what Venerable Mahakachala said you know, when he was explaining your brief statement. It, was he correct? Was he not correct? And uh, the Buddha said, this was, it was Ananda who, would, uh, repeat, who repeated that back to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, uh, Ananda, Mahakachala has explained it exactly as I would have explained it. Uh, that's uh, precisely what I meant, that he has, uh, uh, say, um, say, covered er every detail that, that I would have explained. And uh, Ananda said, this is a wonderful teaching, this is so marvelous, this is delicious, it's delightful, it's like a, a sweet morsel, like a ball of honey. So what, was she, what should we call this discourse? And the Buddha said, well, you can call it the, the honey ball sutta. <laughs> that was the expression that... Uh, Ananda used, so from that time forth uh, to the present day, it's been known as the, the sweet morsel or the honeyball sutta. So uh, that might sound all a bit technical, but I think all of us know that process where uh, the mind uh, gets taken up with a, a thought. You see somebody sitting across the, the aisle in the bus, or you, you, uh, you get a, a message uh, 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 from, uh, from someone. Or you, you see a comment uh, from somebody in the newspaper and then, you know, off the, the mind goes. We see an image and it arouses feelings within the, within the heart. And because of the mind getting lost in its own creations, getting caught up in the streams of, of papancha, of conceptual proliferation, then we find ourselves in this uh, stressed and, and anxious state. That uh, we are, in a sense, we're we're caught up in the circus, <laughs> and the the monkeys are really out of control. So when we're dealing with with papancha, then uh, <clears throat> then this principle of yeah, not my circus, not my monkeys, this begins to <laughs> come into to play because uh, if we we watch the mind and we look uh, and see what what uh, the mind is doing then we realize, well, hang on a minute, that, uh, I'm, just, I'm just seeing this person uh, on the other side of the bus. I, I don't know uh, who they are, I don't know what their life story is. I might think, that person is dangerous, or that person doesn't like me. Uh, why do I think that? It's just somebody sitting on the bus. Yeah. Maybe they're looking at me thinking, I don't like that person, she's dangerous. <laughs> she doesn't like me. But, uh, and so... We, uh, we can bring the, uh, the capacity to reflect and consider into play. So in particular with uh, conceptual proliferation, there are different ways of handling it. Uh, one of which is just to, to, first of all, to clarify what it is that you're, 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 you're afraid of or what you're excited about or what, you, what you're believing in. Like, then when the mind says, oh, and, or, that, or you see someone on the other side of the bus and you think, oh, yeah, that's the one, my one, my one true love at last. You know, I, I found the one I've been looking for all my life. And then <clears throat> there's a, a, a very um, 
there's a, a sweet story that uh, Ajahn Lee, who was one of the great meditation masters in, in Thailand, described how sitting and meditating in his kuti one day, he's, uh, this kind of thing happened to him, and and uh, he was sitting there thinking, uh, well, you know, that, that girl from the village who offers uh, arms, uh, rice on the arms round you, she's pretty nice, and yeah, I'm not really getting very far in my meditation, and uh, yeah, maybe she'd, be, uh, maybe she'd be interested in getting married, and then... And then it goes goes on this long. He goes like three or four pages in his autobiography. He describes all this. Uh, and get, you know, imagine sitting there in his kuti, and he's, they're getting married, and then they have a, they have a couple of children, and then yeah, the, the, he's working on the farm, and she's working in the, the local factory. I think she's making matches, and and then then there's a fire in the factory, and oh dear, and is she all right? And then she's injured, and who's going to look after the kids? And and he's oh no, you know she's she's hurt, and I can't afford the medical bills, and who's going to take care of the children? And and he's in this great sort of tizzy of all this terrible stuff that's just happened to his wife, and who's going to look after the kids? And he thinks, wait, 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 wait. I'm in my kuti. I'm a monk. <laughs> None of this has happened yet. Yeah. So that uh, that um, recognition of wait wait a minute that hasn't happened yet this this world has not come into being I'm still here in my kuti, so just that um, say recognition of uh, the the fact that you know that hasn't happened yet or if you're getting completely wrapped up in in the events of Coronation Street or Albert Square you say well those people don't really exist <laughs> these are actors. This, what I'm seeing on the screen, this is a, a group of people sat down and wrote the script together. This is invented. <laughs> these, are, these are not real people. You know, that, uh, I, I don't have to be uh, losing sleep over what's going to happen to Stevie or Susan or George. <laughs> so there's a, a way that we can simply recognize that there's the fabricated and uh, false nature of what we're thinking. Or, or rather like... Uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha would often describe um, the, uh, and it's similar to what Ajahn Lee was experiencing in his kuti, to say that the, the mind has this feeling, oh, that's a really interesting person, you know, he looks attractive, or she looks attractive, or, or the, you know, uh, uh, what am I going to do if the, uh, when the Ajahn dies? Who'll look after the monastery when the Ajahn dies? And then <clears throat> you can follow it through, you say, well, uh, well then, well maybe he, it won't be just him dies. Maybe uh, all the all the senior monks will die. I'm only I'm only an Anagarika, but maybe all the monks and nuns will die, and I'll be left in charge of Amaravati. And then what? <laughs> so you can take it through to absurdity. Yeah. That uh, again, Ajahn Sumedha would uh, would uh, encourage that when you find your mind getting lost in thought to to say, okay, if uh, <clears throat> yeah, if all the people who don't like me died then only people who like me would be alive. And that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> and you, you, when you do that, and you, you follow it through to its conclusion, you, I find you can't, you can't even get to the end of the sentence. It just becomes ridiculous, becomes meaningless. I, I think only people who like me deserve to live. Anybody who doesn't like me should, should just drop dead. Because yeah, I only want people who like me to be alive, because the people shouldn't dislike me. I don't like that. And it's ridiculous. It's crazy. But uh, <clears throat> sometimes we uh, we find ourselves getting lost in those kinds of thought. Why do Why do people don't like? Why do people not like me? Why do people give me a hard time? Life would be so much easier if everyone was nice to me all the time. 
but rather like Ajahn Chah saying, monkeys are, 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 that's the nature of monkeys is to jump around and play about. That's what they do. The nature of people is some like you, some don't like you, and a lot are completely indifferent. <laughs> Many people don't even notice you. <laughs> so that there are these different ways of, uh, of relating to uh, the streams of conceptual proliferation. Another useful method is when you find yourself uh, completely lost, you know, you're, you're busy um, divorcing your current spouse and getting married to the other person on the bus, or you're, you're in the monastery and you're imagining getting out of the monastery, or you're outside the monastery imagining getting into the monastery. <laughs> How will I look with a shaved head? You know? I don't know about losing my eyebrows, but the rest is really attractive. But you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did this begin? Well, it began with me seeing the back of that monk's head. <laughs> And then, uh, then there was the thought, oh, uh, I'm very attached to my hair, but uh, monks shave their heads all the time. If I, if I shaved my head all the time, I wouldn't have to worry about my hair loss. And then, and then, and then. That's, uh, that's how I got into this idea of maybe I should go into the monastery. I'm, again, just, just making these things up as I go along. So, so you, if you follow it back to the initial perception, like me saying, oh, there's red paint on the back wall of the sala. It's just a red color, uh, and it drew my mind back to that memory of 1991. Or, oh, it's just the, the eye saw the, the back of that monk's head. It was just seeing. It was just a sound. It was just a feeling. So if you trace it back to where it came from, uh, this is a very useful exercise to do. You say, oh, it was just... Seeing somebody on the bus, it was just the color of a wall, it was just the sound I heard in the kitchen, it was just a, 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 an aroma that I smelled, that was all, just a, a, a brief wave of, of feeling, that's all. Very simple. What you find is that the further you go back to, to the source, uh, to the initial perception, just as a, a smell, a sight, a sound, uh, a memory, then the simpler it gets. Uh, the, more, the further you get into the story, there, the more there is me here and the world there and the pressure between the two. If you follow it back to its origin, it's just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. That's all. It's extraordinarily, sim extraordinarily simple and there's no, no sense of self involved either. So then this, uh, I was very struck by this, this statement, not my circus, not my monkeys, because of this habit of mine uh, that was much, much stronger many years ago, it's, it's a lot uh, weaker now, of how I would get so wrapped up in, in the concerns of the world and, uh, and worried about how things were, were gonna, how things were and how things were going to be in the future and uh, what people were thinking. And uh, so as I uh, um, explored this and I uh, saw it re reflected in this, this kind of statement, I realized that's a very profound principle of uh, development of a, a, a feeling of, of anatta, of uh, not-self, that the world is this way. Yeah, this, this is uh, how the world is. It's, these are, uh, this is. The world is a circus. It's a lot of activity and color and movement and sound. But it's not my circus. I don't have to own it. I don't have to, to be possessive about it. I don't have to create a sense of false responsibility in relationship to it. 
that uh, and the what people feel is not under my control. I might feel I might want everyone to be happy. I might want everyone to like me. <laughs> I might want uh, nobody to ever uh, ever suffer in any way. But I can't control that. It's not under my control. That's uh, we're not the owners of the world, and so that often we we don't realize that we're creating a, a tremendous amount of tension and suffering in ourselves because we relate to other people as if we own them, that uh, as if we were in control. Uh, another aspect of it is that the. Um, even though you might think, well, it's yeah, not my circus, not my monkeys, it's not my problem, <laughs> uh, that the world often demands that you have an opinion. Uh, I lived in the USA for a long time. It's quite strong here, but it's even stronger in the USA. So I lived in the US for a long time. And there it's almost illegal not to have an opinion about things. They say, what do you think about George Bush? And you say, well, I'll, I don't think about George Bush. <laughs> But you must have an opinion, Ajahn. You know, what's your opinion? And uh, it is, it's almost, uh, people would be quite shocked or, uh, and feel almost insulted if you say, I don't have an opinion. How, how can you not have an opinion? Because culturally it's almost an obligation. And how many uh, conversations start in the workplace or in your home, you know, watching something on the television or you're uh, talking about something in the office or with your... Uh, uh, with your colleagues, your co-workers, and so and something in you. So, so what do you think about Boris Johnson? And you can say, I don't think about Boris Johnson. <laughs> what do you think about uh, Donald Trump? Just to raise the stakes. <laughs> I am an American citizen as well as a British one, so... I have, a, I have I could have anxieties on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> so, uh, so I feel that the, in terms of developing a, this uh, insight into not self and uh, use this principle as a way of of helping our lives, uh, often to to recognize when someone says, "What's your opinion?" or "What do you feel about?" It's helpful to be quite honest. And if you don't have an opinion, don't feel like you have to come up with one just because of making conversation. Sometimes people are, will, will say something, uh, they'll ask you, they don't even really care themselves. They, they, they say, what do you think about such and such? They don't care what you think about such and such. They just want to talk about something. <laughs> and they just want the interaction with, with you. And, uh, and so I, I've, uh, in the past I found myself over and over again finding someone has asked me a question, what do you think about such and such? And then you, you say something, and then they immediately start an argument with you. So, well, I don't really think that's true. I think it's, you know, you've got to look at both sides of it. You think, well, and then five minutes into it you realize, hang on a minute, I didn't really have any interest in this in the first place. And now I'm, I'm find, finding myself in opposition to this other person. And you might also have noticed another interesting related ph phenomenon whereby somebody's so keen to engage that you, uh, you, uh, you take their side. You say, actually, well, I think you're right. Um, and you agree with them. And then they'll, they'll keep arguing with you. And they'll, they'll come up with the opposite uh, <laughs> side of it uh, and say, well, no, actually, I think you were right the first time. So oftentimes we're just keen to be with each other and we need an excuse 
uh, a way of speaking with each other just to be able to spend time together. But we can find ourselves getting caught up in opinions, taking positions and getting uh, uh, fully involved with the circus and the monkeys <laughs> when we really don't need to. So I would encourage when people ask you for an opinion or, uh, or to, um, uh, to speak about something, to consider, well, do I, do I really have an involvement? Do I really think about this very much? Do I, do I have something to, that's useful to say or not? And, uh, and I would encourage you to consider it's completely legal to say, I don't have an opinion, <laughs> or I don't think about Boris Johnson, <laughs> or, or whoever. You know, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's not as though one is disconnected from society, uh, that you're, we're still living as part of the human family, but if things are not particularly your concern or your interest or you're not particularly involved, it's quite okay to say, um, I haven't thought about it very much, or um, uh, and yeah, I don't have an opinion. And that in itself can start an interesting conversation. <laughs> there, there also, uh, there, there's a, uh, as I was saying about control, we, we suffer a lot because we somehow feel that we're supposed to be in control. Particularly if you're a parent and you're supposed to be in the control of your children. Or you're a, a, the, a school teacher and you're supposed to be in control of your class. <laughs> or you're, you're uh, in a hospital, or you're, you're running a department, or you're supposed to be in charge of, sort of these people. <laughs> but even when we're not in, a, in a, uh, a formal position of leadership, somehow we seem to feel that we're, we're supposed to understand everybody, and supposed to know what's going on. Does that make sense? That we're somehow, we, we understand everything. We're in control here. I've, I've got this covered. You know, I, I know what's going on. And... Because we don't really, <laughs> we, don't, we don't really know what's going on, we don't really know how things work, we're, not, I mean, we're certainly not in control, then we, again we create stress and, and uh, distress in our heart because uh, we don't really understand how things work. We don't know where they're going to go. We don't know what all the, um, the people are feeling and thinking. And, and it's not up to us. And so... Uh, uh, again, I, I saw myself doing this a tremendous amount. Uh, how I, I was always trying to... Uh, I'm a kind of compulsive explainer. <laughs> I always want to have everything sorted and explained and every, all my lists made, of how everything is working. And uh, it took a lot of effort in, in, in my Dhamma practice to just... to not explain everything. <laughs> to not have everything, uh, uh, say, organized or, uh, or predict, predictable. But, or not to, to be feeling like I, I understand where people are at, but rather just to, uh, to leave things alone and say, well, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how this works. I don't know what people are feeling. And then when I would bring that to mind, to notice, oh, <laughs> suddenly I feel a sense of relief. Because it's, it's a false sense of control that we... Uh, we, we bring into being. We're not really in charge. We don't really understand. But because we feel we're supposed to, then there's a sense of, of, of lack or insecurity. But if we instead reflect on anicca, uncertainty, and realize, of course it's uncertain. <laughs> of course there's the, the unknown, there's the mysterious. It's always been this way. <sighs> when we acknowledge that, that quality of uncertainty and th things are not under control, these are monkeys. No one knows what the monkeys are going to do next. <laughs> That's what the world is like. Then 
then we're not creating that false sense of I'm in charge here, I know what's going on, I know how this works, I know which way it's going to go. And so we're, like, just as Ajahn Chah said, we're much more at ease with letting the monkeys be the way they are. So many years ago, when I was uh, sort of looking at this very directly, because I, I, I was such a worrier, I was always you know, worrying about uh, life and what was going to happen next and how things were and what people were feeling. I made a, a, a specific practice of, of, uh, of watching that worrying feeling, that sense of, of uh, uh, identifying with the circus or making it mine, <laughs> and consciously looking at that feeling of tension that, w- that would come up within me. And uh, as a practice, and I've often talked about this, but I, I feel it's, it's useful to say again because uh, I found it so helpful for myself. The way I would begin each day, this was, I was living here at Amravati between 85 to 95, so this was about two or three years of that period when I was living here. Every day uh, at the morning meditation, I would begin the day by saying, whenever I have a feeling of anxiety or worry about anything, whether it's got a, a, a real basis or whether it's just my imagination or, or worried about what someone is thinking or feeling or worrying about whatever's going to happen next, Whatever the object of worry is, I'll set the intention to notice that feeling of worry, to turn the attention around and then feel that, that worry, that sense of anxiety in the body. And almost always it would be like a, a, a knot of tension in the stomach, in the solar plexus. And then noticing that, that tightness, then say, okay, whenever you notice that, that tightening in the body, that worry of, <laughs> what are we going to do now? to consciously relax, to relax the muscles of the body, to relax the stomach, and to let the body be at ease. And then when the body is at ease, then to, uh, to fully notice what that's like when the body is free of tension, free of that, that stressing. And then uh, a very interesting aspect of this exercise then, at that moment when your body is completely relaxed, Ask yourself, what was it that I was worrying about? What was it that I was worrying about? And then I would find almost every time, for two or three seconds, there'd be this, what was it? And you, 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 you couldn't find it for two or three seconds. Oh yes, I was worrying what Ajahn Comrade was thinking. That's right. <laughs> and then you could, re, you could reconstitute it. But for a moment, there was no thing to be worried about. <laughs> there was no object. And you realize that, that it wasn't to do with the world being wrong, it was to do with how the mind related to the world. That's where the wrongness was coming from. Does that make sense? So uh, that was a very helpful practice. So I did that every day for like two or three years, made that the, sort of the main focus of my, uh, of my spiritual life. And it had a big effect. And also during this time, I had this little uh, reflection I would bring up uh, for myself, which was, just do what you do and let, and let the world make of it what it will. Uh, in other words, don't be afraid or don't be trying to find happiness through getting approval from everybody about what you do. <laughs> uh, because uh, <clears throat> I found I was very, my mind was dominated by wanting to please everybody all the time. And being afraid of being, uh, say, disliked or disapproved of or, or displeasing somebody. 
So this was really hard to do. At first, the, uh, when I'd say that, say that to myself, just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. I could feel this, this little voice in me going, but, 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 but. <laughs> but they might not like it. <laughs> they might be unhappy. <laughs> and so uh, that made me realize you're right on the mark. <laughs> that's, uh, that's exactly what needs to be looked at. And then so after doing that for two or three years, I found this, uh, this tremendous ease. In a way, I was just letting the monkeys be the monkeys. <laughs> that, uh, the, just letting the world be the, the way it is. And so this is not a matter of being careless or indifferent or just numb, which I'll get onto in a minute, but having a relaxed attitude, uh, a kind of a, a way of letting go of that false sense of, of control or of... Or, or, Fear that the world is 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 uh, needs you to be worrying about it in order for it to hold together. Uh, during during this time, there was a, another monk who was living here, uh, Ajahn Sangwaro, and uh, he made this because uh, uh, I was also uh, uh, during this time I was I was just sort of being a lot more relaxed in my attitude and the way that I, I did things and related to to uh, life in Amravati. And uh, one day Ajahn Sangro made this comment, he said, you know, you're a lot easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. <laughs> so I wasn't sure whether to be insulted <laughs> or feel very, very uh, complimented. <laughs> but it was a very helpful comment because wasn't, he wasn't trying to be hurtful or clever. It was just a, a, a kind of an offhand remark that... Uh, you're much, you're much easier to live with when you stopped, since you stopped trying to be perfect. So all my trying to get it right and please everyone was actually just creating this cloud of tension. <laughs> and once I was a bit more relaxed, that was actually a, a much more uh, helpful thing to offer to the world. So when, I, when we use a, a phrase like, not my circus, not my monkeys, it can be, uh, it, you can uh, interpret that as saying like, uh, you know, I'm all right. I'm, you know, I'm all right, Jack. I've got mine. You know, I don't care about the rest of you. You can just, you know, get lost. It's not that that kind of attitude. It's not sort of just being dismissive or or being a sociopath. You know, just sort of cutting yourself off from everyone, trying to make yourself not feel. Uh, you know, it might be interpreted in that way, but what? It, uh, but if we uh, take the Buddha's teaching on the middle way to heart, we realize it's, it's, uh, what this is talking about is having a, a balanced attitude whereby we are both attuning to the people around us, the things around us, but we're not creating that uh, an attitude of possessiveness. Uh, there's a Pali word, anadana. Like we're all familiar with the word dana, meaning generosity. There's another word, anadana, which means non-possessiveness or non-ownership. Which is, dana is a very important word, but anadana, <laughs> in terms of wisdom, is even more important, I would say. Because it's, what it expresses is that quality of non-ownership. Like, this isn't mine. This, this circus does not belong to me. This world is not mine. <laughs> this body is not mine. This monastery is not mine. It doesn't have an owner. Uh, so, anadana uh, means non-ownership, non-possessiveness. Uh, these are not your children. These are not your parents. This is not your money or your debt. <laughs> you know, this is not your property. This is not your life. And so part of us can be threatened by that because we think we own, well, my, my reputation, my children, my money. 
my monastery. <laughs> that uh, it can feel like something that was ours is being taken away. But uh, it, what it's pointing to is that uh, in terms of the, 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 the teaching that the, the Buddha's uh, say, uh, spelling out for us is that how could anything really have an owner? Yeah, ownership is just a conventional agreement. We can, I can say, uh, this, this is my copy of Food for the Heart. <laughs> it's got my name in it, I think. So this is my copy, it's got my notes in it. But you know, one day it might go missing, uh, I might put it down, somebody might pick it up, and then it's not mine anymore. <laughs> Before I, it, it reached me, it was uh, printed by Wisdom Publications in, in uh, Boston. So before it arrived here in a box, it wasn't mine. <laughs> it belonged to Wisdom Publications. So my, the mindness is something that comes and goes. It's, it's not something that's absolute or permanent. So when we are reflecting on, on this area, then it's a relaxation of the heart is what it's talking about. Like the world is like this. We are, uh, and when we... We let go of the sense of ownership or a false sense of responsibility. We can actually take responsible action more effectively <laughs> when we're not trying to be in charge or be the owner or be the 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 one the, the the me that is supposed to be looking after everything or me who's the 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 doer, the controller, the the actor. When that um, feeling of possessiveness and identification is is let go of. Then, just as uh, Ajahn Sangro's comment, oh, you're much, you're much easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. <laughs> when we stop trying to get everything right, we stop worrying about uh, the aspects of the world that uh, are stressful or painful, we find that we can uh, engage with the world in far more effective and helpful ways. So the, um, it's a, it's an, it's, the middle way is a mysterious mixture. You know, when... Uh, the the Buddha represented these qualities uh, in um, uh, one of the aspects of of his own nature, which we uh, describe in the uh, the what are called the, the the qualities of the Buddha, the Buddha Guna, is vijja charana sampano, so uh, perfect in knowledge and conduct. So the vijja is the quality of awareness, that quality of wisdom that is based on uh, on uh, say non-attachment, on uh, non-possessiveness, uh, it's the the insight that of uh, as the Buddha said, it's a the, say the the realization of of truth. It's a it's realizing that that uh, there is uh, there's no owner of things. There's uh, no substance. Things are sunya. They are empty. They are ownerless. They are anadana. They are they are void of substance. So vicha wisdom uh, awareness is that has a completely transcendent quality. It's let go of the world completely. Let go of this body, this mind, the, the world. It's completely uh, abandoned. Uh, there's no sense of attachment or ownership or or grasping. But yet there's the in that the in that same expression vicha is twinned with charana. With conduct, so the Buddha is not just perfect in wisdom and, and knowledge, but also in perfect in conduct. So, the, as it said, from the time of the Buddha's enlightenment uh, until the Parinibbana, when his final passing away, every word, every action that he took was completely in harmony 
with the way things are, was completely uh, harmless, completely honest, completely appropriate to the time, the place, the situation. He was totally in tune with the world. So those two work as a pair, Vijaya and Charana, or in using the Christian theological terminology, they have immanence and transcendence. They're both the heart totally attuned to the world and loving the world, completely in harmony with it, but also there is vijja, there's a complete um, transcendence. The heart is completely unattached and un unidentified with the world, with the world outside, or the world of our own body, our own, our own mind. And so the, <clears throat> the thinking mind might think, well, well are you, uh, are you uh, caring for the world or have you let go of the world? <laughs> are you attached or are you not attached? You've know, you got, got to be one or the other. And this is one of the great mysteries of the middle way, that uh, it's, uh, there's both that quality of, uh, of attunement, perfect harmony with the way things are, but also perfect transcendence, a complete uh, non-attachment, non-identification with the way things are. And those two are, are two aspects of the same reality, the, the reality of the, the pure heart. So when we use a principle like, like, uh, or apply this kind of reflection, not my circus, not my monkeys, uh, it's not a, a creating a, sort of, uh, a, um, a false separation or a, a numbing of the heart. It's not like encouraging us to be sociopaths <laughs> or just uh, uncaring. But rather it's, uh, it's through letting go of those habits of, of anxiety, uh, the habits of, uh, of ownership, that we can respond. Uh, and uh, just in, in Ajahn Chanda series um, most recent newsletter, there she came up with a, a, a very nice little coining, which was response ability, with a hyphen in the middle. Response hyphen ability. <laughs> I thought that's a great way of putting it. It's our ability to respond. When we think about the word responsibility, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I immediately feel tense. Like, it's my responsibility. <laughs> I've got to make all these people who've come for this Sunday afternoon talk happy. I've got to make them inspired. I've got to make them understand. Then that's my responsibility. Then it, there's, you know, these are my monkeys and this is my circus and we've got trouble. But if it's instead of its response hyphen ability that we're, we're talking about, then, uh, then it's really helpful. <laughs> then we are... Uh, enabling uh, our heart to respond to the time, the place, the situation, and what uh, is we can best offer to each moment. So these are a few reflections on monkeys that I offer for consideration, and uh, we can uh, pause for uh, some refreshment. I see the refreshment team is loitering in the kitchen, waiting to appear, and uh, we'll. Uh, it's just about three now, so uh, we'll uh, have a. a uh, break for about 20 minutes and then about 20 past uh, three we'll uh, gather back and if there's any questions or things that be useful to have a dialogue about then we can uh, bring those up at that time. <laughs>